we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Breaking news in the NDIS, Sam. Yes, lots happening in the NDIS world that are coming up lately, Hannah. There's a new pricing arrangements and price limits document that has been released. There has been indeed with lots of changes as well as New Zealand citizen changes to eligibility for New Zealand citizenships to become NDIS participants. Very exciting. That is. And also a really exciting or or not that exciting to read, but a report has been released. It's a new home and living report called Having a Go, Making Individualised Living a Reality. There's no such thing as a boring report, Hannah. I love every one of them. But another one is that LAC agreements have been extended until 30th of June 2020, except for a very uh, specific area in North Sydney, which is quite interesting. But Yep. Um, and the NDIA are going on a rural road trip and having pop-up service centres in rural and regional centres. So that's a bit exciting. Indeed. I wonder if they'll take me along. Love a good road trip. And excitingly, the, te- the NDIS is 10 years old. So started as, since starting the, the three-year test site in, back into, uh, and by 2020, we'd rolled out everywhere around the country. And now we have over 600,000 people live, relying on the NDIS for support. That's, that's awesome. It is a very big number and it's growing. Yes. And there's lots happening, as we've said earlier. So let's get in it and explain what we're talking about. Yes. So, Sam... What is the pricing arrangements and price limits document? Ah, the PAPL, as we call it. So the PAPL is the pricing range and pricing limits guide. And so that is the document set out by the NDIA as to who, what, when, how, why can be charged to an NDIS plan. And so it's it sets the maximum of what a provider can charge a participant for any particular service that you may provide and it also gives us the line item numbers that we need to have on our invoices it does and i started a very big can of worms the other the other week um but it does it goes through our uh the catalogs it goes through the categories it goes through the areas and the domains that you can pull money from and then sets out a uh, pretty easy format for providers to understand what they can charge and how they can charge it, especially within your core capacity building and capital items. So 
what changed this time really weren't many like rule changes, which normally we have lots of rule changes when it comes out in July. But this time there wasn't so many rule changes as um, pricing changes. So um, the prices changed for all of your regular sort of core supports, but they didn't increase for support coordinators, plan managers or therapies. That's correct, though. They did put level one support coordination adjustments in there. Yep. For the 777 people who have level one support Very small number, and I have never had the pleasure of actually seeing or supporting one of those participants. So it's a very interesting one. But the the big reason for the the pricing adjustments has come out of the Fair Work Commission and the National Minimum Wage Decision to increase minimum award wages by 5.71% which is a fantastic outcome for direct support work, direct support workers within the industry because uh, we all know that the price of living uh, within Australia is becoming very hard and there's lots of really struggling uh, struggling families and individuals and a lot of those individuals are support workers within the disability space. So I think that's a, a very good um, and a very good way to help support people. Uh, that are, are struggling and that are struggling and supporting people that are struggling as well. Yeah, look, and I absolutely think that's great and it's definitely needed. But I I do think there was a lot of controversy around not increasing for support coordinators and plan managers and therapists. And it t- to me, like... It is very frustrating that they didn't at least increase a little bit for support coordination. Um, And I don't know how prior to the new PAPL coming out, there was a lot of talk in the support coordination realm about some support coordination agencies going Fast because there's not enough margin for profit margin. That's the word. There's, there's not a profit margin in support coordination. So they were looking for the NDIS to increase the price of support coordination. And the fact that they haven't could see a lot now exit the scene which ha- is of course good and bad because it might might mean a lot of really shit support coordinators get out of the way yeah it's... and but it also might see a lot of good ones leave yeah. as well because they're like well we've got cost of living pressures and the responsibility that support coordinators have in their job is is huge and the weight that we have on our shoulders and you just wouldn't do it for any less money than you absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, really disappointing to me that that they didn't see the need to at least increase 
by the same margin that they increased support workers. Yeah, very true. Because it does come out of the same award rate at the end of the day uh, where the decisions were made to put that 5.75% increase, I think it was. Sorry if I've got numbers wrong there. But it does propose... Back in COVID, there was a never let a crisis, never let it off opportunity of a crisis go. So for support coordinators, I think this is the time that we need to really look at how we are providing services, where those provide services might be outside of scope, because let's face it, we all really care about participants Support coordinators really care to ensure that the participants that they're providing supports for have those supports in place. And unfortunately, that has had the effect where we're providing services that we're actually not able to bill for in the first place because we might need to go above and beyond that what's within the care plan. Um, or sorry, what's within the, the the budget allocation for that participant, and they might need more, or there might be other circumstances where things are, are playing out that you're getting calls left, right, and centre. You might have some participants with some high psychosocial uh, requirements that do need more time on the phone, or expect more time than what is realistically available. To give them. I think this is a time where support coordinators really need to look at how they're providing supports, how they're utilizing supports. When you look at the bigger companies that are doing support coordination, their overheads in terms of staff labor should uh, are probably around so it's the 40% mark direct labor costs you throw a bit more percentage in there to cover for work cover and your training requirements. Then you have your operational overheads, your CRM systems, your support and admin staff, your administration team, your accounting team, your management levels. It's probably looking at how that all is broken down and what opportunities are there to change the model because where you're, if you're a big support agency, support agency that's providing support coordination to participants, and you have these, you have your staff providing supports that you're not making, that you're not able to charge for, it becomes really tricky. Um, because still, it's it's not like all providers are very money hungry. It's about sustainability. And you and Alicia, yeah, um, had a really good conversation around sustainability and viability of support coordination in our last episode six. Fantastic episode! If you haven't listened to it, um, I do sit on the do sit on Alicia's side of the fence quite quite a lot with what she was saying in in that. Um, but it's yeah, a good opportunity to, to reassess. And maybe look at those high-level participants and start exploring other options inside that plan so it's not all your support coordinator's responsibility to be on that phone call. If they have psychosocial recovery coaching, that could be a good way. If they don't, you could try and see about leveraging psychosocial recovery coaching as well as support coordination within a plan. Do they have peer support workers? 
this is an area I think, especially within the psychosocial, that we do not look at utilizing enough. Is there a way that you can connect your participants that are high frequency callers and long intense callers with peer supports? Because in that way you are spreading a your time diversifying their support networks to not rely on one person because that becomes problematic because as support coordinators burnout is a massive thing all right so how about we move on to citizenship yes very (laughs) exciting news for new zealand citizens yes so To sort of give a bit of an explanation, Australia doesn't have birthright citizenship. So even if you are born in Australia, if your parents don't have citizenship of Australia, then neither will you. And so New Zealand citizens were um, ridiculously (laughs) had to try and get citizenship when, if they wanted to, get citizenship of Australia. Um, and I don't know why why you'd want to. I mean, I love Australia. <laughs> I'm a citizen of Australia. But New Zealand seems like a far better country. Um, <laughs> um, the They would have to go through the same rigmarole that every other immigrant to Australia would have to go through, which sort of seems silly because realistically I think between Australia and New Zealand we we should be pretty in, interchangeable and it shouldn't be that hard and so now what the Australian government has said on the 1st of July New Zealand um, citizens there is a very straightforward way they can directly apply for citizenship they don't have to go through permanent residency first um, They just have to have lived in Australia for four years and um, they pay some money and then they can become an Australian citizen, which then means that they can do things like get on the NDIS, which I think is brilliant because if you've chosen to make Australia your home, then you also should be able to get what Australian citizens Uh, afforded. And one of those is the NDIS. Um, So I really think this is, this is a great step forward. Yeah. For the NDIS. Very much so. And there there was always a very big barrier for New Zealand citizenships, New Zealand citizens when they come to Australia. Um, And there had been historically a lot of contentious sort of side of things. And I'm really glad to see that we're, we're breaking some of the barriers in this space and moving forward. Um, the next one that we sort of, uh, we spoke about in our headlines was the report having a go and making a living, making individualized living a reality within the home and living space. So there's some really awesome research that came out within this a report that really focused on adults with autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, intellectual disabilities, and psychosocial disabilities. So that, that, that's not really an area that had had a lot of space or research or understanding um, previously. It was very much focused on physical disabilities, making sure you had robust access, making sure there was wheelchair access, making sure that you could get in and out of a bathroom fine. But how uh, people with 
non-visible disabilities interacted with home and living was sometimes very confrontational because everyone wants to be able to live in a home where you feel like it's your home, not that you're in a group environment that isn't yours. So there was four key areas for action that came out. And I think there's some of the, number two is my favorite point, but we'll go down the list. Uh, So being able to explore living options early and at different life stages. So everyone's life changes. It, we all have different things happen at different points in times and being able to adjust for those changes is really important. Whether you're, you're leaving home at 18 or you're turning 40 and you've got, you don't want to be living with 18 year olds is really important to everybody. Um, number two, which is my favorite is trialing different options. Yeah, this is my favourite too. Yeah, 100%. Being able to trial something, I think, to me, feels like what we've sort of been missing previously because when we apply to get someone some sort of um, shape or form of housing within the NDIS, we have to say this is definitely what they want and but actually we don't know if they're going to enjoy that or not or if it's going to be suitable for the long term until they give it a go and then we'll go, oh, shivers, that didn't work. What do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is definitely my favourite. Yeah, 100%. Uh, number three was formal and, in, uh, formal and informal supports to build practice and maintain skills to increase home and living options available to participants, which I think is a big one, especially where uh, intellectual disabilities come into play. Um, There's, it's a very high risk area and it's really sometimes scary for those participants where you don't necessarily have, have the skills. And if you go into a home that you're not used to, you don't have the, the, the skill sets to be able to settle into that new home or it could be a whole new routine. And we know a lot of these participants really have to have strong routines to be able to maintain. <laughs> um, yeah, so- absolutely. And and I think like my idea of of people living with supports in their home is it is always to build and practice skills anyway. So the fact that this is sort of being put in like enshrined into the idea of what we're on about, I think is an excellent way forward. So, yeah. 100%. And the last point uh, or the last key area for action to come out of the report is flexible NDIS plans that can support participants to build capacity at different stages. So I think this follows on from number three really nicely, um, looking at the different capacity or different skill sets required to match where you're at in life, to match what your um, disabilities require to be able to function in life. Mm. I think there's some really good points in this and I really hope the agency and providers take a good look at how we can 
actually execute this report. So, Sam, the LAC contracts were extended recently to t- July, uh, June? The end of June, the 30th of June. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> the 30th of June, 2025. Um, this was to help the agency while they make up their mind about what the job of an LAC will even continue to look like because it has been a little bit controversial because the original idea of what they thought an LAC would be and then what it's become are worlds apart. So the one caveat to the extended contracts was um, for everyone – all y'all living in Northern Sydney, Um, there is an early childhood partner to the NDIS that um, has been the Cerebral Palsy Alliance and they actually will cease their contract on the 30th of September 2023 this year and then from the 1st of October it will be Northcote Society um, and they'll be the new early childhood partner there. So the early ch- childhood partners have LACs that are more specialised um, in the early childhood. And if you listened to a few episodes ago, um, we did have a chat about how early childhood was being extended from age seven to age nine. So to me, these early childhood partners are even more important than they previously have been because they're about to have, you know, a whole, a much wider scope and a bigger responsibility. Yeah, and participants within their space longer as well. Yeah. So I, I think there's – I just probably should put a bit of a thing. There's no actual real explanation on Cerebral Palsy Alliance that does not – mean that they're a bad organisation or that they're a good organisation. It just means that they're not providing those services within the LAC space anymore. Yeah, absolutely. We, we absolutely. And um, if you want more information about this, we will have um, um, links to these um, media releases in the show notes. So the rural road trips from the agency coming around and having pop-up service centres. So where they're visiting rural and regional areas within New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Victoria, uh, they will be on board services uh, on the, sorry, they will be on board the Services Australia Mobile Service Centre and you can talk to them in person. So that removes the phone call barrier for people living in very remote areas and regional areas of Australia, which there are many in that space that rely on NDIS services. Um, you can go have a, uh, a chat with them about uh, understanding the NDIS, applying for the NDIS, how to use your funds, and understanding further options. They'll be in South Australia from the 20th of June to the 7th of September. New South Wales, 27th of June to the 7th of September. In Queensland, from the 27th of June as well to the 7th of September. And Victoria is slightly different from the 4th of June to the 7th 
Oh, sorry, the 4th of July to the 7th of September. We'll also put those dates up on the website as well as uh, some links to go on where they're going to be. Um, you can find out more information when we put that link up there or you can go to the Services Australia website. Awesome. It sounds so good. I'm, I'm so excited that the NDIA do this um, and it... It is such a, a needed thing because sometimes trying to talk over the phone is is difficult. Yeah, you know, and and the fact that they do this, I think, is is brilliant. Um, so Sam, the NDIS turned ten years old. Happy birthday to them! <laughs> I don't know if that's the right thing or not, but yes, it's ten years old. It has been a very very interesting 10 years, to say the very least. There have been very, some really good things. I think overall there's been some real positive change that this has brought, but at the same time it's had some very unexpected impacts on some very core cool groups. And there are... Changes coming in, the reviews very much looking at a lot of the disparity uh, between different groups and where you've had um, impacts on different uh, areas, the lack of supports within the rural and regional areas, um, socioeconomical issues as well that have come into play or been highlighted, uh, service access. There's there's a lot of lot of things that, Room for improvements or continuous improvements, as we, we call it in the auditing world. Um, but overall, I think we're on a positive journey. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, but everything could be done better. Sure. But, yeah, I think it's way better than what we had before. And I appreciate that the money now sits with the participant rather than with a provider for for one thing. And um, I think it has changed a lot of people's lives. Um, And um, yeah, it also blows my mind a little bit um, talking about it being rolling out for 10 years. So People might not understand that there were three trial sites um, that started in 2013 and um, and then it slowly rolled out to the rest of Australia and Western Australia were the last people to go. So realistically, the NDIS is only three years old in poor Western Australia um, and in South Brisbane, for example, it's been out now for five years. And, you know, before that it rolled out earlier in Townsville, for example, and then it was a different time for Ipswich. And, you know, like the way it rolled out was... (laughs) Hunter and then there was also a a, a satellite site in Geelong as well. Yes. That's my hometown. (laughs) Yes. So um, it's, it's been really good and I'm really excited to see what the review that it should be coming out soon yeah says um 
because I really do want to genuinely see the NDIS just get better. Yeah, I think that's everyone's ultimate wanting of the, uh, the participants, the providers, the agency. Yeah. Um, Kurt Finnegan, did I say that right? Finlay. Finlay, that's it. Sorry, Kurt. Um, really wants this. The yeah. board really wants this. There's lots of really good positive changes working towards this. We're now close to less than four months out from the due date of that report. There's been many review papers being produced already. Um, so it's a lot of information to absor- absorb, um, but it's really exciting to see the positive changes that are already coming out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's the enough for today. Yep. And um, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at whatinthendispod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au. And to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.consulting. Until next time. As the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.